He is beyond redemption, except by the plunder of his country. If he can, he will certainly disturb our institutions to secure himself permanent power, and with it, wealth. Alexander Hamilton, in advocating against Burr, was essentially proposing making a deal with the devil you know. Delaware's abstaining from Burr came from assurances that the worst rhetoric of the campaign wasn't true. And as Noah Feldman wrote in his biography on James Madison, quote, while Hamilton did not exactly broker the deal, he certainly provided its outlines, end quote. So if Jefferson wasn't going to eliminate the Navy or wrest Federalists from office or reform the financial system or undo the neutrality in foreign affairs, what would Jefferson do? Welcome to Expeditions, a podcast around Lewis and Clark, where we look at the history and the historiography one day at a time. We are at Expeditions Pod everywhere. That's social media, Patreon if you want to support the podcast, as well as our website. You are currently in Mile Marker 3, episode The Jefferson Administration. March 4, 1801, Jefferson would be inaugurated as the third president, and his Democratic Republicans would take their seats in the Seventh Congress. This Congress was the opposite of the one that came before. The Federalists had a slim majority before the election of 1800, but were reduced to barely a third. So before losing all that power, which they'll never regain again, they passed a few acts that ensured that they wouldn't be easily forgotten. Most important was the passing of the Judiciary Act of 1801 on February 13th. It reduced the Supreme Court from six to five, the opposite of packing the court, while doubling the circuit courts and installing what have become known as midnight judges to the reorganized district courts. Sitting at the new Supreme Court was recently confirmed sitting Secretary of State John Marshall, John Marshall as Chief Justice, a prickly pair in Jefferson's governing style in the years to come. Mr. A embarrasses us, Jefferson wrote to Madison. The relationship between Adams would essentially end for the time being, as Jefferson fought the old strictures of Federalist control and assembled a team to turn visions into realities. After a fractured election, Jefferson sought a harmony that would become a cliched striving for all future administrations. Madison as Secretary of State was a given, predetermined prior to the election. Albert Gallatin, mentioned previously for being removed from his Senate seat in Pennsylvania, because he didn't fulfill the residency terms of the old Naturalization Act, was tapped for Hamilton's old gig, Secretary of the Treasury. General Henry Dearborn, veteran of the Revolution, appointed one of the first U.S. Marshals for Maine and a representative for Massachusetts was offered Secretary of War. Robert Smith, representative from electorally deadlocked Maryland, was offered the Secretary of the Navy. And Levi Lincoln, a respected lawyer also from Massachusetts to shore up more support from the Northeast, was nominated for Attorney General. Throughout Jefferson's two terms, only the attorney general position would see Lincoln replaced by Virginian John Breckinridge. The only administration member iced out of Jefferson's inner circle would be Aaron Burr. James Madison proved to be Jefferson's confidant and ally. He succeeded him in the presidency and will be influential in the second half of this podcast. He's been portrayed He's been portrayed as the ice to Jefferson's fire often cooling the tempers of his friend's radical utopianism for a more sensible, constitutional brand of utopian thinking. He was born in Virginia's Piedmont, growing up on a slave labor camp known as Mount Pillar, close to Monticello. 
though Madison wouldn't meet Jefferson until the fall of 1776 in Williamsburg, and the two worked together reforming Virginia's laws and religious freedom, which would culminate years later in Jefferson's famous statute for religious freedom. He was a member of the Continental Congress. He served Virginia in the House. He's seen as the most integral person in the framing, drafting, and ratification of the Constitution, though he would say he was given too much credit, as it ought to be referred to as the work of many heads and many hands, as well as being the author of the Bill of Rights. Despite a lack of foreign policy experience, he'd be at the helm during Napoleon's ascent and the sale of Louisiana, the defendant in the landmark Marbury versus Madison that establishes judicial review, and the tensions with England that would boil over during his presidency in 1812. Albert Gallatin was born into a wealthy family in Geneva, Switzerland. He studied Rousseau and Voltaire before emigrating to America in 1780. He'd arrive in Boston, spend time in Maine, before becoming a French tutor at Harvard College. Tired of the Northeast, he became an American citizen in 1785, swearing allegiance to Virginia, which fulfilled Article 4 of the Articles of Confederation, which is now a meme for the sovereign citizen crowd. He'd buy a plot of land in Pennsylvania and build a home called Friendship Hill. Gallatin was elected to the Pennsylvania House, then was chosen for the U.S. Senate before being deposed. After the Whiskey Rebellion of 1794, where he took part in the fated Second Convention in Pittsburgh, Gallatin was elected to the House of Representatives. His financial education allowed him to challenge Alexander Hamilton's influence. In 1796, he would publish a sketch on the finances of the United States. His devotion to the cause was enough for Jefferson, who probably met Gallatin from his membership in the American Philosophical Society, to succeed Samuel Dexter, appointed by John Adams in late 1800. Jefferson had Gallatin made secretary during a recess appointment, a portent of Gallatin's struggles in the future as he would fail in the nomination as Madison's Secretary of State. During Jefferson's administration, though, he would be credited with eliminating Federalist taxes, reducing the national debt, as well as securing the financing for the Louisiana Purchase, among others. On the day of his electoral win, Jefferson wrote Henry Dearborn, quote, On a review of the characters in the different states proper to the different departments, I've had no hesitation in considering you as the person to whom it would be most advantageous to the public to confide the Department of War. May I therefore hope, sir, that you will give your country the aid of your talents as Secretary of War, end quote. Dearborn was born in 1751 in the province of New Hampshire. Fighting for the 1st and the 3rd New Hampshire regiments, he became a lieutenant colonel before serving on George Washington's staff. He was at Bunker Hill under Colonel John Stark, volunteered on the doomed march to Quebec under Colonel Benedict Arnold, where he met and befriended Aaron Burr. He was at Ticonderoga, at Freedman's Farm, Monmouth, he wintered at Valley Forge, and was at Yorktown and present during Cornwallis' surrender. Importantly, it wasn't just the British that he fought against, but their native allies. He was on Sullivan's genocidal march against the Haudenosaunee in the summer of 1779. His journals of this time in the Continental Army proved immensely valuable as somebody who was at so many pivotal moments during the war and would lead to future fights over the legacy of this era, notably with Israel Putnam in the years to come. He was part of the first class of U.S. Marshals appointed by Washington for the District of Maine, which wouldn't become a state until 1820, and served in the House from 1793 to 97. One of Jefferson's major goals, as we'll see, was limiting the military after what he viewed as a Federalist overreach, culminating with the Military Peace Establishment Act of 1802, which stemmed from Dearborn's report on the War Department in May of 1801. He'd also be a direct correspondent with Meriwether Lewis as our story kicks off, 
as War Department would play an enormous role in the rest of his life. The policies enacted under Dearborn's purview included the shrinking of the size of the Navy, a department that was only two years old. As Jefferson relates to Dearborn on March 31st that Mr. Stoddard, Secretary of the Navy, having early in this month informed me by letter of his desire to resign the office. Stoddard was the first secretary, and under his guidance, six Navy ships were established, with plans for 74 gunships to compete with European powers. The U.S. had three 44-gun ships and three 38-gun ships that were approved during the 1794 Naval Act. Those included the Chesapeake, the Constitution, the President, the United States, the Congress, and the Constellation. With 12 total, when Jefferson's replacement for the Navy, Robert Smith, reduced the fleet to just three. Smith wasn't Jefferson's first choice, or his second, or his third, or fourth. Robert Livingston, who will soon play a vital role in the Louisiana Purchase, was Jefferson's first choice. He wrote Livingston in December of 1800, quote, Republicanism is so rare in those parts which possess nautical skill that I cannot find it allied there to the other qualifications, end quote. Next, he would turn to General Samuel Smith, who declined to give up a seat in the House of Representatives of Maryland. Next, to John Langdon. He was a representative of New Hampshire at the Constitutional Convention and was perhaps seen as a candidate to bridge Federalist divides as he was more aligned with them before his opposition to Jay's 1795 treaty that normalized relations with Great Britain, which allowed Jefferson to feel comfortable with that rare republicanism. Finally, Jefferson tried to tap William Jones, asking him on May 16, 1801. He would decline, although he would become secretary in 1813 and is credited for the naval defense that led to success in the Great Lakes in the War of 1812. He wrote his last choice in July of 1801, quote, When it became necessary for me to name a successor to Mr. Stoddard as Secretary of Navy, my attention was naturally first called to those gentlemen whose line of life led them to the intimacy with shipbuilding and navigation. The place was therefore proposed to your brother, to Mr. Langdon, and to Captain Jones. They have all declined it. It becomes now necessary to find one in some other line, end quote. Robert Smith, the younger brother to General Samuel, was born in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and fought in the war, namely at Brandywine. He was elected to the Maryland Senate and the House of Delegates before the Jefferson administration, where he would butt heads with Gallatin in particular. He became Secretary of State under Madison before being acrimoniously succeeded by James Monroe. From March to August 1805, Smith also held the title of Acting Attorney General after Levi Lincoln would step down for personal reasons. Perhaps Smith received some advice in performing double duty as, in March of 1801, Lincoln himself was interim Secretary of State prior to Madison, who wouldn't assume the office officially until May 2nd. Lincoln was born in Hingham, Massachusetts and graduated Harvard College in 1772 and set up his practice in Worcester. He participated in the cases of formerly enslaved Quack Walker and Elizabeth Freeman, who appealed to the Massachusetts Constitution's contention that all men are born free and equal. He would parlay with Federalist Dwight Foster throughout the 1790s as he became more of a Democratic Republican. He would finally win office in the House, but would barely serve when he accepted Jefferson's nomination as Attorney General. In that office, he would play a crucial role in moving Marbury versus Madison forward, his contention that he didn't remember if Madison ever received the commissions he was supposed to hand out wasn't enough to deny Marbury's right to that commission. But instead of compelling Madison to hand over those commissions, the court went one step further declaring, 
it is emphatically the province and duty of the judicial department to say what the law is. In addition, he dealt with land speculation schemes, the Barbary Wars, and the constitutionality of the Louisiana Purchase. As Gordon Wood wrote, quote, Jefferson had the most stable cabinet in U.S. history, making only one change in a second term, and his consultations with its members were regularly full, frank, and to his benefit. His department secretaries were not afraid to speak their minds, and their advice often caused Jefferson to revise or reject what he had first proposed. He was strong enough to respond to their suggestions, questions, and criticisms professionally and without ill will. It never hurt that Jefferson's erratic personality quelled potential conflicts among the members. End quote. There was one member that won't show up in an official secretarial capacity, compared more to an aide-de-camp to the executive branch. There was no salary for staff back in the day, and the enslaved laborers at the president's house wouldn't get paid anyway, so the decision to have any was up to the executive. Following the footsteps of Tobias Lear and William Smith Shaw, Jefferson asked his young neighbor, Meriwether Lewis, if he would join the Jefferson administration. <laughs> 